This is Patrick Tag. Hey, Patrick. It's Suzanne Delbanco calling from Catalyst for Payment Form. How are you? I'm well, Suzanne. Thanks so much. Thanks for picking up. I'm calling just to get an update on how things are going in Rhode Island, especially around healthcare prices and the policies you guys have put into place. But before we get started, I wanted to make sure you know we've got an audience listening. And for their sake, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself, that would be great. Sure. I'm happy to do that, Suzanne. So my name is Patrick Teig. I am the Health Insurance Commissioner for the state of Rhode Island at the aptly named State of Rhode Island Office of the Health Insurance Commissioner. I was appointed to that office and began serving in January 2021. Prior to that, uh, earlier in my career in the state, I served as the state's Assistant Secretary for Health and Medicaid Director at the State of Rhode Island Executive Office of Health and Human Services, where I led the state Medicaid program. I've also worked at this office, in fact, here, OHIC, the Office of the Health Insurance Commissioner, at the staff level even earlier in my career. Well, obviously, you have a really good sense of what's happening in the state, so I'm so grateful for the chance to talk with you. So one of the things I've been following in Rhode Island is that it's one of the states that has begun to establish healthcare cost growth benchmarks. And can you just tell us where the state is in this process and how well you think it's going to work in reality? Sure. So we established a voluntary healthcare cost growth target in December 2018 as a part of a public-private compact that was entered into. Following that, the cost growth target was codified in an executive order. So the first year in which the voluntary cost growth target was in effect was calendar year 2019. And so we will actually be announcing the results of the state's performance against that target for 2019 in the next few days. So right now we are scheduled to announce the results of that uh, on April 29th, 2021. Wow. So we're just a couple of days before that big news. I, you know, I'm not asking you to scoop those results, but maybe you could just comment on how a cost growth benchmark can help with containing costs. I mean, you mentioned the word voluntary. It's now an executive order. What does it actually mean in reality in terms of implementation? So I think the most compelling logic and argument for how a voluntary cost growth target such as ours can effectuate change and help manage healthcare costs is as follows. It's a really combination of transparency first and foremost. So it's bringing transparency to not only the overall growth in healthcare costs, but the specific drivers of that growth. But then you're combining that transparency around those issues with uh, leveraging it to move the state and drive consensus toward taking concrete measures to constrain that growth. So simply put, either when you, when you hit the target as a state and achieve what you're setting out to do as a collective state community, or when you miss the target and find yourself exceeding it, I think in either way, it can create a catalyst for driving toward those solutions either needed to continue to keep healthcare costs down or to re remediate performance that's above the target. Thanks for elaborating on that. You know, another thing that Rhode Island has done, which has not been copied as far as I know anywhere else, or if it has, it's maybe, you know, in a very limited way, Rhode Island limits the amount that commercial insurers can increase the prices they pay to providers year over year. And I thought that was a really clever way when I first heard about it to help rebalance market power, if you will, if, you know, you've got a state like Rhode Island where there's a lot of consolidation among healthcare providers and you want to give a little bit more negotiating leverage or if not negotiating leverage, then just pure leverage, you know, to the buy side of the market. This is, you know, an intriguing way to do it. 
Can you comment on how much this has helped to control healthcare cost increases? Can you quantify the difference it's made? Sure. So my office, OHIC, as you said, we limit the amount by which commercial health insurers can increase the prices that they pay to hospitals for both inpatient and outpatient services. In regulation, that growth is capped at essentially inflation plus 1%. I think that it's not an overstatement to say that this provision in our regulations is not the most significant, among the most significant and effective measures to contain healthcare costs that we put into place. Um, there was a study that was published in Health Affairs back in 2019 that compared the Rhode Island commercially insured population to a matched control group, and they found that quarterly fee-for-service spending among the Rhode Island group decreased by $76 per enrollee after the implementation of this measure, and that represented about an 8.1% decline from 2009 spending levels. Yeah, that's kind of unprecedented. I mean, you don't ever see things going backwards. <laughs> and so, you know, that's really incredible. As far as you know, have other states copied this yet? I'm sure many have considered it. Yeah, so we certainly have seen, and I have seen, there's been a lot of conversation around other states putting into place something similar. But I certainly agree with you that there has not been widespread adoption. What I think this says about the importance of this policy is really twofold. One, that it's very important to have a direct policy that targets price growth uh, as opposed to just cost growth more broadly because we know that price growth is driving a very significant part and, in fact, the most significant part of the rise in healthcare costs. And that, too, that it's very hard to have this kind of a policy in place and that you have to work extremely hard to build the kind of community consensus and support among stakeholders to keep a policy like this in place. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, when we think about which stakeholders have big voices when it comes to influencing policy, you know, those that might be most affected by this, who you would think probably won't like it, can have a lot of influence. And so I can imagine that it's a very delicate balance to keep it going. And, you know, kudos to the state and all the stakeholders there for finding a way to do that. Another area where, you know, I think there's a lot of consensus across the country is that, you know, we need to spend more on primary care and ideally balance that with less spending on specialty care. I know that Rhode Island has now set goals for that in terms of spending on primary care. Can you describe that a little bit and say anything you can about how the delivery of care has changed as a result? Sure. So from 2010 to 2014, when we first put this requirement in place for payers to increase their investment in primary care, we effectively required them to double their investment in primary care over that time period. We also have a very active patient-centered medical home collaborative known as the Care Transformation Collaborative that is an all-payer state, again, provider-payer partnership to help support practice transformation while those investments were being made and are being made today. I think what we've seen as we've made this increased investment in primary care is that we certainly have seen that there has been a decrease in cost and improved quality over that period of time. But what I would really, really emphasize is that 
making that kind of primary care investment and again, sustaining it over the long term, that becomes even more critically important as you start to move into the realm of advanced value-based payment, which my personal belief, and I think the literature bears this out, that the strong foundation for successful accountable care organization arrangements and other types of advanced budget-based value-based payment, it has to be built upon a strong primary care infrastructure. Yeah, no kidding. And you know, I'm the daughter of a primary care doctor, so it's always been you know front and center in my mind. And it's amazing how you know, through the decades, there's these aha moments about primary care, but kind of like, you know, investments in teachers or social workers, a society we haven't quite figured out how to allocate the investments appropriately for the results that they can have. What's next in Rhode Island when it comes to policy intervention? I mean, you know, you guys have really been a leader in terms of thinking through not so much, you know, there are people who are sort of anti-regulation and look at it as interfering with a free market. On the other hand, you can look at this stuff as what do we need to make a broken marketplace work better? So what have you guys been thinking about in that regard? Yeah, so we really view regulation, as you, as you said, as a tool to create the conditions to ensure that in our state, all Rhode Islanders have access to affordable, high-quality care and ultimately improve health outcomes. So in terms of what's on the horizon for us at the office, we're really looking at a whole wide range of new policy initiatives to further these goals and accelerate the work we've already done in the past. But I would highlight three here. The first is that we're looking at analogous to the primary care investment work that we talked about earlier. We're looking at doing something similar on the behavioral health side because we recognize that there has been underinvestment in that system historically and that there's an opportunity to improve affordability and quality by potentially driving additional investments there in an evidence-based way. Second is we're looking at increasing and accelerating community-based investment on the part of our payers to explicitly address social determinants of health that drive health outcomes in the commercial market and improve affordability. And third, to the earlier part of our conversation as well, we are looking at if more expansive price growth caps are necessary and if they can be as effective as the ones we've had on inpatient and, and outpatient care. So we're, we're looking in particular at the professional services side. That's really great to hear. I mean, just it's so important to see these sort of creative and innovative approaches taken so that we can learn from them. And hopefully they have very successful results for the citizens of Rhode Island. But it's also helpful for other states who are trying to figure out how to grapple with these same issues that you guys are, are willing to be a leader in this space and try new things. So I really appreciate you taking the time to give me an update. I'll keep a close eye on how you guys progress and wish you the best of luck with all of it. Suzanne, thanks so much. It was a real pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks, Patrick. Talk to you soon.